BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. It's the California Report Magazine. I'm Sasha Koka. Today on our show, we've got another segment in our series, Mixed, Stories of Mixed-Race Californians. The most common question that I got growing up was, what are you? I just never understood why, why can't you include all of me? You know, where do I fit in? Who do I identify with? I need all my mixed people to talk about it, express yourself, your perspective. I'm mixed and I'm proud of it. Being myself and having an awesome family. I have always been a mixed person. I wouldn't know how to think of myself otherwise, and I'm not planning on changing. (laughs) Folks who are mixed race are a growing demographic here in California, and KQED's Marisa Lagos and I, who are both mixed ourselves, have been talking to other multiracial Californians across the state. We've been talking about what's hard and what there is to celebrate about being mixed, and today we've got another special guest. Somebody I really looked up to when I was a kid. What flashed through your mind right then so you could gain your composure, which you did beautifully? Well, just to get back and do the jump that was after, the double toe loop. It was just a slight over-rotation on the throw double axle. But then we completed the throw triple salad can. I was really happy about that. Well, you That's that. Olympic figure skater Ty Babylonia. She rose to fame when she was a kid very quickly, along with her skating partner, Randy Gardner. They were a talented duo when they made it to the Olympics in 1980. I remember I was in elementary school, and I was glued to the TV that winter, watching Ty and Randy dance over the ice. And I knew she got her start at a rink near LAX, the LA airport, which is near where I grew up. In the decades since, Thai Babylonia has opened up a lot about her difficult experiences in life, and she's dedicated her career to creating pathways for young figure skaters, especially skaters of color, pursuing a professional career. But one thing people might not know is that Thai is also mixed race. We're so lucky to have Thai Babylonia on the show today to talk about her life and experiences as part of the series Mixed Conversations KQED reporter Marisa Lagos and I are having with mixed-race Californians about our experience. Ty Babylonia, it is so great to have you on our show. Thank you for coming on. Ty, we are so excited to have you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I am honored. I can't wait. So let's start by having you tell us about your family and your childhood. Well, I grew up in Los Angeles. I was born in 1959. My father is Filipino and Hopi Indian, and my mom is black. We lived in a great neighborhood. It was a rainbow of different nationalities. Hispanic and black kids and white kids and mixed kids. It was on a street called Sierra Bonita in Los Angeles. We didn't know any different. It was really when my parents moved us to the San Fernando Valley. 
in 70, 1970, white, all white. And did your parents ever sit you down and talk with you about it or talk to your brother about race, what it would be like to be perceived as a black man? I mean, was it a conversation you guys ever had explicitly? No. My brother and I didn't, we didn't know that we were different. My brother is much darker than I am, so people didn't believe we were brother and sister. We would just laugh it off. We got the funny looks. I got the funny looks when I was with my mother. It was the outside world that couldn't figure it out. They didn't know what to think of us. They'd never seen a multiracial family. What it does, it makes you tough. You learn whether you know it or not, you're starting to build that armor, that protection, you know, for the future. When I did get a little uncomfortable, mostly for my brother. So that's when, that's when that armor came in handy. And what about your grandparents? Did you grow up with your grandparents at all? Did they give you any messages about their culture and your identity? Well, my dad's mom, who's the Hopi Indian, very wise. There was one, one saying she had, love many, trust few, and always paddle your own canoe. I live by that. When I got into figure skating, you know, that, that's when things started to change and questions would come up. And networks not knowing what to call me. <laughs> if I hear exotic one more time. But, the, you know, they, they didn't know where to put me. They put me in a box that they felt comfortable in, identifying with. And, uh, you know, exotic just, it, it always came up. I, I, see, I see it now with other multiracial and mixed kids. Especially women. Right. Especially, Especially women. women. She is shy and retiring, surprisingly unsophisticated for one so exotic in appearance. She has grown into an exotic woman with flashing dark eyes and rich milk chocolate complexion. Thai Babylonia, a lush, exotic, child woman. It's hard to believe now, but those are real newspaper articles from the L.A. Times and other papers going back to early in your career. Do you remember how those kinds of descriptions made you feel? When it was happening, it didn't, I didn't care. I look back now, it's like, why couldn't they just call me what I was? What stopped them from saying what my mother was and what my father was? But... It never happened. You skated for a while before you were probably being talked about on television. What was it like when you were really little and you first came to the sport? There's Rankin Culver City. That's where I started. Um, I took from Mabel Fairbanks, pioneer, first black coach, legend, trailblazer. You know, it's interesting to me that she was black but also had Native American uh, in her family. Mm-hmm. Yes. She wasn't allowed to compete or join a show. So there's no record of, you know, of competitions or anything. We were her kids, actually, because she didn't have kids. She had a stable of students, all different nationalities, rich, poor, celebrities' kids. We didn't feel different. The one thing she did say, because we did look different, and we were all different shades of brown and beige and black, we must jump higher Spin faster and sparkle brighter. Hmm. It's a huge lesson. I didn't know what, you know, as a nine-year-old how powerful that was, but those are pretty powerful words. Pretty beautiful way to say something that's um, kind of hard to hear, you know? Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
she knew and she just, she planted that seed in, in all of us. So at what point do you feel like you really became aware of people kind of pointing out your difference and realizing how white figure skating actually was? Was that once you kind of made it to the national stage or as you made your way up in competition? Once Randy and I, my partner, started climbing up the ranks nationally and becoming champions fast, all of a sudden we're on ABC Wide World of Sports, just the IT pair team. Hi, Babylonia, age 18. Randy Gardner, 20. They're both from Los Angeles. These two kids, young teens from Los Angeles. Five years ago, they were the youngest pair ever to represent Came out of nowhere. Now Our first nationals, 1973, and it was white. You know, maybe one or two other black skaters call us whatever you're going to call us, put us in whatever category you want to put us in. I still have to go out and compete. This could be a little sporting history. The end of their program. Here it is, a death spiral. Just go out and do your job. The proof is in the pudding. And there it is. It is it. And when you're winning, it shuts people up. By Babylonian Randy Gardner. Again, the Paris Championship started in 1908. It does. It shuts people up. Once you, you know, once you're up there and you're doing well. We were spinning faster and jumping higher and at the top of the podium, you know, and us being two different colors. That was so normal for us. So you did come into some anger about how you had been exotified or at least some feeling that you could push back. Was that once you were older and felt more empowered? Yes. Once I, like in my 20s and once I was a professional, once I left amateur skating and, and became a professional, did a lot of interviews. And it sounds like they focused on your blackness. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. It wasn't fair to my father. And sometimes, you know, to even it out, on his side, on the Filipino side, there were stories where they would focus on just that. I just never understood why, why can't you include all of me. Did you feel like you needed to be a role model? Did you feel a ton of pressure? Like, what was your mindset in that moment? During it, did I think about being a role model? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Then you start getting letters from kids and schools. And I started reading letters of kids of color saying, we, you know, it was so nice to see someone who looked like me. As I got older, people coming, young, mostly young women coming up to me, young women of color, of all colors, saying it was so nice to see someone who looked like I did. But then things fell apart. In 1980, you had to withdraw from the Olympics in Lake Placid, New York, after Randy was injured. I can't imagine how devastating that must have been. Randy Gardner, Randy Gardner falling there. Let's bring in Dick Gardner. Uh, if anyone's going to fall, it's, it's usually me who's going to mess up something. Uh, that's the second time Randy went down. I think in practice, wasn't it, Dick? I, I tell you, I'm not live on the scene. I'm dying a quiet death. That night, in that practice, before we were to go out for the short program, he kept falling, and I could tell uh, he was, when lifting me, something it was off. In our team, he's, Randy's the leader. You know, I take my cue from him. Um, and I could tell just by the way he was holding my hand 
that it wasn't strong. And that's when I knew, I was like, something, something doesn't feel right. I didn't know the extent, I knew he was hurt. And then he got the shot of xylocaine where he was injured, which deadened the injury, did what it had to do with the injury, but it deadened the whole, his whole leg. Again. Oh, goodness. There he goes again. I wonder if they'll even no, be able to give it a try. He just can't support the leg. There's no way that he cannot do that move. He cannot support it. His leg was numb, and it buckles underneath him. I was kind of in the dark, and I kind of found out the extent of the injury when the world found out. I saw they have withdrawn. I looked at my mom in the audience thinking I don't really didn't know what was happening. I feel badly because this couple have worked so many years to get to this point. It must have felt like your dreams were crushed once your competitive years were over. Must have felt like a real turning point for you. The main thing was, can we skate again because of his injury? That was the big question. And will they go on for another four years and compete at the next Olympics? Absolutely not. We were done. We had peaked. So the next logical thing would be to turn pro and join a show. We signed a contract with Ice Capades for like three and a half years. In just a moment, we'll have the rare opportunity of watching perhaps the finest pair skaters to ever take the ice. Former Olympians, former world champions, the incredible team of Ty Babylonia and Randy Gardner. For me, that's where the problem started. Something would trigger me, I don't know what it was, and I would, you know, I would lash out or do something stupid or take a drink and take more drinks. And that was, that was my big problem was the alcohol. Did it have anything to do with Lake Placid? Maybe a teeny bit. I just kind of tucked it away. And I think it resurfaced when I was on the road and not being prepared for a professional life, not knowing what it entailed. It was just, everything was new. I couldn't keep up. I was just suppressing loneliness and, you know, not who to trust. I was just holding on for dear life, just get through the contract, just because you can't break the contract, just get through it. Ty, you gave an interview to People Magazine at the time where you really opened up about what you were going through. Actually, from there is when they, um, a movie came off of that People Magazine article. Based on the real story of one woman's will to win. The only one who can change things is you. On Thin Ice, the Thai Babylonia story on NBC Monday. For me, like I said, it was just a way to stop lying. Because the stories were going to come out anyway. I could, you know, they were kind of seeping out stories about me. Just being a normal, kind of a normal, wild teenager. But all eyes were on me. In that interview with people, you talked about this loneliness and how drinking was hurting your life while you were on the road. But what surprised me the most was how you talked about a conversation you had with your brother. You said, that night I stayed up until dawn talking with him, and we talked about, quote, everything except the Olympics. We just It was just a reminiscing session, and and it got me through. It got me through that night, which was a tough night. The conversation of, you know, to my brother, do you remember when, when... you know, people would look at us and they, they wouldn't believe that we were brother and sister and how we would giggle and just talked about our childhood and how, you know, how we loved it, how we loved the melting pot. Our neighborhood was such a melting pot. And how we, when we moved to the valley, what, what my brother went through, we had never heard the word, the N word, never heard that. And it, it came up, you know, to my brother in school. 
He never told my parents. I didn't know. When you look back, a lot of we've talked about a lot of what was not discussed in your life. You know, your identity, sort of the secrecy around some of the stuff around skating. It sounds like you really kept your mental health struggles a secret for a long time while you sort of tried to deal with it. Do you see a through line there? Do you think there's, you know, something about the culture of skating, uh, your family culture that made you not want to sort of reach outside for help? I think there is. I just, you know, I didn't think about it back then. I had a lot of therapy since that. Therapy started probably after that the film came out. That was exactly what I needed. And understanding that I had a voice, I just had to learn to use it and learn that I was allowed to use it, which I didn't know. That was the big thing I learned in therapy. And you know what? People listened. People listened. Well, and now, you know, fast forward, you're working with the Diversify Ice Foundation, which is, you know, trying to address some of this stuff and, you know, making sure that kids of color do see this as a possible path. What do you think skating still needs to do to address race and diversity? U.S. figure skating, they're a little behind the times, but they're learning and we're pushing and and groups like Diversify Ice and figure skating in Harlem. But it's getting the right people of color in the higher places, like with U.S. figure skating, more people on staff of color. It's still very white. It's getting better. You know, we have to push and just make things more available for skaters of color. It's very expensive. But it's it's teaching the young ones and the parents about Mabel Fairbanks the one who started it all. That's my work. That's my job, is her legacy. Well, Taya Babylonia, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Olympic figure skater Ty Babylonia talking with us about her struggles as a mixed-race athlete during a time when the sport was largely white. She's working on a film about her trailblazing coach, Mabel Fairbanks, who was also mixed-race. Coming up next week in our mixed series, a conversation with the professor who taught the longest running course on mixed race studies in the United States. It's just always been very natural for me to think of myself as being an in-betweener or a liminal man that puts, you know, in, in the in-between spaces. Dr. Reginald Daniel passed away recently, but before he died, we recorded a conversation about his remarkable journey to claiming his mixed race identity, even though everyone else in his family identified simply as black. And now we're going to head to the Central Valley to catch up with a family whose story we've been following for the last couple years. It's about a dad who left California to apply for his green card in Mexico and ended up separated from his family for almost four years. He got caught up in changes the Trump administration made to the questions consulate officials ask people trying to get green cards, questions that made it harder for low-income people to become legal residents. Well, we've got an update to that story. Last month, after almost four years away from his wife and kids, Jose Luis Ruiz Arevalos was finally able to return home to California. EdSource reporter Zadie Stavely tells us how his forced absence changed the course of his children's lives. A bus pulls up in front of La Esperanza Market in Los Banos. On the curb, the four Ruiz Gutierrez siblings are waiting anxiously. 
13-year-old Priscila is carrying a bunch of balloons, red, white, and blue for the colors of the American flag. Her older brother Ignacio holds up a big handmade sign. It says, Bienvenido a Casa Jose, and the number 1,366, the number of days their dad has been in Mexico. As Jose gets off, Priscila jumps forward to hug him. And one by one, the older siblings join. Nathan, then Ignacio, then Elena. Once I saw him in the bus, I was like, wow, this, this is real. <laughs> like, everything I hoped that would happen, like, it happened. This family has been separated for almost four years. Back then, the youngest, Priscila, was nine in third grade. And the oldest, Elena, was a freshman at UC Merced. She was the first to go to college, a huge deal for her family. And then that spring, Jose went to Mexico for the final step to apply for his green card. He thought he would be able to come back in six days. And for him, even six days seemed like a lot. Nunca nos habíamos separado. We'd never been separated before, Jose says. Even if we went to get a gallon of milk, we would all go together in the car. And I thought, six days? What am I going to do without my family? Jose thought he had all his green card paperwork in order. He'd lived in the U.S. without papers since he was 17, some 30 years. It's hard to get a green card if you cross the border without papers, even if you're married to a U.S. citizen, like Jose. So he and his wife, Armanda, applied for a special waiver, saying without Jose's income and emotional support, she would experience extreme hardship. Armanda explains she can't work because she has a full-time job caring for two children with disabilities. One of her kids, Nathan, struggles with severe depression. Her youngest, Priscila, was born prematurely with major medical problems. In 2019, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services approved the waiver. But when Jose went to his appointment at the U.S. consulate in Ciudad Juarez, officials asked a new set of questions authorized by the Trump administration. They wanted to know if Jose or his U.S.-born kids had ever used public benefits. Jose never had, but his kids did. Priscila has disabilities, so she gets supplemental security income. All the kids had gotten food stamps and Medi-Cal. Because of that, the consulate told Jose he was ineligible for a green card. And suddenly, he was stuck in Mexico, far from his family. At UC Merced, Elena's life was turned upside down. I was just devastated. I... Because he was the only one working at that time, so I didn't know. She dropped out so she could work to support her siblings, even send money to Jose, who was struggling to find work in Mexico. The kids stayed in touch with their dad by video call. Papi! ¿Cómo estás? Bien. ¿Cómo le explico a mi hija que es autista? Las leyes de inmigración. Armanda says how could she explain the immigration laws to her daughter Priscila, who has autism? Armanda says he couldn't come back, but Priscila didn't understand why. She always drew pictures of the family all together. Jose's absence affected Ignacio and Nathan, too. And, like, every time you come home, you're just like, oh, I feel like something's missing. Nathan went to community college part-time while also working. Ignacio was a top student in high school, courted by Harvard and Yale. 
but he chose to stay close to home and attend UC Merced, in part because Jose was gone. Jose was torn apart by how it was affecting his kids. I talked to him on Zoom from Sonora in 2021. The worst thing is that they really put their heart into their studies, he says. I feel like I'm clipping their wings. The Biden administration reversed the Trump policy in 2021, but Jose had to apply for a new waiver, get another green card interview, and it took almost a year and a half due to backlogs from the pandemic. In January, when Jose's new visa finally arrived in the mail, he almost couldn't believe it. In that same instant, I went to buy the camion. In that very instant, Jose says, he went to buy a bus ticket. He told them, give me the soonest ticket available so I can be with my family. When Jose told Priscila he was coming back, this is the first thing she said to him. Me dijo, papi, quiero que vayas a mi graduación. Papi, I want you to come to my graduation. Jose had missed four of his children's graduations while he was in Mexico. Priscila graduated from elementary school. She's now in seventh grade. Nathan and Ignacio graduated from high school. And Elena graduated from community college. If Jose had been able to come back in 2019, Elena would most likely have graduated from UC Merced last year. Instead, she finished a two-year degree at a community college. She also worked part-time jobs at a tomato packing plant and as a cashier at Big Five. And she joined the Army Reserve. Before Jose came back, she was starting to panic trying to figure out how to get a well-paid job without a four-year degree. So to me, it's like, okay, so now I don't have to stress out this year and be like, okay, like, let's just jump into law enforcement. Let's just jump into, like, construction. It's more like, okay, now I can slow down, think about what I like before I jump in. Now she's thinking about maybe studying communications or Spanish at a four-year college. For now, she's just enjoying her family being together. After Jose returns, the whole family celebrates. Jose's aunt ladles out pozole she made, and Jose and Armanda slice up pizzas they warmed in the oven. The kids play with a cousin's baby. Before the Trump changes, only about 3,000 people a year were denied entry because officials doubted they would be able to support themselves. In 2019, the year Jose got stuck in Mexico, a record 21,000 people were denied. That number's gone down since the Biden administration reversed the Trump administration's policy. But the Trump era rules had a chilling effect. Immigrants are now less comfortable leaving the U.S. to apply for green cards. On his first morning back, Jose wakes up in the family trailer in Los Banos for the first time in years, feeling like the time away was all just a bad dream. Y sentí como que nunca había salido de allí y como que haya sido una pesadilla. Jose is trying to make up for the four years he lost. The first thing he does that morning is make pancakes for Priscila. Later, they play one of her favorite board games, Mustache Smash. On weekday mornings, he walks her out to wait for her school bus. He holds her hand, then waves goodbye as she climbs aboard. It's these little things that Jose missed most, the day-to-day of parenting. Porque se levanta uno y ve uno que ya creció un poquito, 
He says you get up and you see they've grown a little bit or they did something new or learned something new. They're just little details, but they stay with you as a father. Jose can't ever get those four years in Mexico back when he felt he clipped his children's wings. But now he's hoping to watch them fly. For The California Report, I'm Zadie Stavely. That story was produced in collaboration with EdSource. And that's it for the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED in San Francisco. Our team includes Katrina Schwartz, Susie Racho, Brendan Willard, and Jessica Carissa. And I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.